Good morning, Vox. It is so wonderful to be with you today, and happy Juneteenth, happy Freedom Day, which, uh, yes, absolutely, which is such a beautiful and surprising thing for me, um, sitting from this seat. You know, as a, as a black native Austinite, a native Texan, this holiday has always been visible, has always been honored, has always been important to me and my family. Uh, but to now have it centered in such a way that is acknowledged by the masses is not only long overdue, but I think a beautiful thing for us to honor today. And so just as this day is a reminder of delayed emancipation, it also signals the ongoing broken promises, delayed liberation, even in recognizing both the pain and celebration that this day means. And so as we begin today, I want to open us up with a prayer a prayer to center how we might consider this day and every day after through a lens of liberation, not granted by necessarily this country or our political systems, but the justice, shalom, and freedom that we are called to pursue and promised in and through Christ. And so I offer these words borrowed from a voice that I admire, Cole Arthur Riley, the founder of Black Liturgy. God of all, Stir our collective consciousness towards lives lived not merely by a cluster of individual choices, but of communal and systemic action. Forgive our interior complacency, which reduces our callings to mere whispers of care for the most vulnerable among us. Free us from any self-delusion that convinces us we are doing more than we really are, that we might perceive the condition of our souls more clearly. Reveal to us how our political lives are deeply intertwined with our spiritual ones. Guide us to vote, petition, rally, holding sacred our privilege to participate in societal decisions that could bring healing, health, liberation, and repair. And as we align best we can, and as we align best we can with what we know of our character and desires, let us always move towards protection and justice for all people. Amen. So as we untangle and further commit to this calling of liberation and collective freedom, I'm curious to understand what does freedom mean to us? How do we interpret and practice freedom in our own lives? And so I want you to turn to your neighbor and take the next two minutes to conjure up what words or images come to mind when you think of being free. What does freedom mean to you? All right, so what did we come up with? Shout them out. Words or images that came to mind when exploring freedom? Self-determination. Self I like that. What else? Unencumbered. That's a good word. All right, digging into that thesaurus. I like it. Anyone else? Power. Power, yes. Ooh. Awesome. Yeah, so each of you explores the different modalities of freedom or the different vehicles to experience of freedom. I think those all resonate, those, those images, right? Thank you so much for sharing. Well, as I was exploring what freedom looks like in my life, um, I was in the midst of a trip to New York and Toronto. And I realized that as a native Austinite whose work is centered in community, I actually feel most free when I'm outside of my daily routine and practices in this city outside of the responsibilities and obligations, both self-imposed and externally generated, I feel most free when I'm traveling. And on this particular trip, I was even reminded that it isn't just the practice of disrupting my routine or the rhythm of, or my daily rhythm of not abiding by my Google Calendar, 
that offered me respite and freedom. It was the practice of being in a space that organically and intentionally gathered people whose lived experience mirrored my own. As a black woman living in a mostly white city for the majority of my life, I've learned to consciously and unconsciously navigate spaces fully aware of my otherness. An otherness that sometimes spurs looking or questioning of my body in specific spaces or neighborhoods. An otherness that alarms me of how best to protect myself in the presence of certain authority. An otherness that automatically knows how to shift my speaking patterns, dress, or presence in order to center the comfort of those that I'm, in their pre- I'm present. An embodied otherness that for 34 years has rarely known complete agency, autonomy, or freedom. And for the seven days walking through the bustling, melanated, multicultural streets of Brooklyn and Toronto, I was briefly reminded of what it feels like to have your existence, your beauty, be seen, affirmed, acknowledged in a way that celebrates rather than questions. And I say this with full acknowledgement of my privilege that my body carries as a cisgendered, heterosexual, upper-middle-class, highly educated woman. But I also offer this individual experience, this personal grappling of freedom to perhaps inspire us to ponder, what does this day, what does our biblical mandate for collective freedom look like? In our scripture today, we are reminded that justice is promised to us. We read, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. So what does this mean to be justified by faith? What does justice mean? It means fairness, equity, the principle or ideal of just dealing or right action, conformity to the principle or ideal. Righteousness sets us right with God. In Paul's writings, he acknowledges that, the, that nobody can be made right with God by following just the works of law. As fallible beings, we will not live up to the law. This is evident in the mere existence of the transatlantic slave trade in a country whose founding principles and decree that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, And yet, that has not been the lived experience of black people in this country. I believe Paul's invitation then is to acknowledge the harm done when laws are broken, injustice is rendered, and to seek righteousness, correction, and shalom in God. In Isaiah, it's said like this, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and please the widow's case. And later in Micah, he, has, he says it like this. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So it's undeniable, Vox, we are called to the work of justice. While the responsibility to reconcile systemic injustice most definitely rests in the hands of elected officials, justices of the peace, law enforcement, and our community leaders, The work of racial justice, the pursuit of community healing, also lies in the hands of all of us who consider ourselves a part of this community story. That includes and in many ways necessitates the visceral and visible investment and intention of those of us setting vision and building missions. Our brands, our organizations, our institutions are the drivers, the most powerful tool of both our finances and our storytelling. 
And so will we remain a silent character whose complicity nurtures hate, or will our voice and our hands actively work to dismantle systems of oppression? Will we leverage our position, our power, our authority, perhaps even our privilege to empower and affirm those who have been oppressed? Or will we simply shield ourselves from that pain, from that suffering, from that injustice? Author and spiritual activist Dante Stewart says it like this. We have to dismantle theologies that believe in freedom and love in heaven, but tolerate injustice and oppression on earth. When we talk about justice today, we often discuss justice as this distant concept, both spiritually and societally. It is this work of others. It is the work of those who hold certain titles. We even consciously and unconsciously separate ourselves from the injustice, from the harm, from the pain, as if injustice is the work of others, as if as people of God, we are not culpable, we are not complicit, we are not caught up in the sin that undermines people's humanity, healing, and wholeness. We want restitution, right? But we demand that restitution oftentimes without actually naming the harm we've done. And so I posit, are we actively participating in the work to reconcile, heal, and dismantle these paradigms, these practices of oppression? Are we just bearing witness to them? Liberation is an active posture. Loving my neighbor is an action. Seeking justice is a verb. Honoring the story of Juneteenth, sojourning in the work of equity and justice requires much more than good intentions. Woke tweets reading scripture, right, creating a benevolent fund or joining in on a parade. The call to actively dismantle systemic racism, the biblical mandate to participate in collective repair is a spiritual act. But let me pause for a minute and offer a helpful framing for how we enter or continue this contemplation and life work. I'm going to offer some definitions. Because for many of us, this conversation, this exploration, it's overwhelming, it's burdensome, or perhaps even exhausting. But for those of us whose lived experience is not oriented by racialized oppression, I offer this friendly prompting. Guilt and shame will not move us to liberation. I think we have something on the screen for that. Guilt is an emotion, not an action. Oftentimes it is our shame and our guilt that actually paralyzes us It thwarts sustained fight. People of God, we can't participate in the holy work of racial justice and collective liberation from a place of shame. In Psalms, we are reminded that guilt and shame hold no place in Christ. Instead, it is grace that abounds. Psalms 103 says, God is sheer mercy and grace. Not easily angered, he's rich in love. He doesn't endlessly nag and scold, nor hold grudges forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, nor pay us back in full for our wrongs. Instead, I offer a framing of our, uh, for our collective posture from a place of conviction. And we define conviction like this. And I, I love this definition. It says, it's a state of being convinced. Because it isn't that our faith, because isn't that what our faith is predicated on? A state of being convinced despite sometimes tangible evidence, despite the evidence of living in this country, this world, right? That doesn't affirm our full humanity, 
that we operate from a place of comprehensive love and justice for all, that that is our response to God's calling from a place of conviction that will propel us to action. So Vox, I ask us to reflect on this today to propel our spiritual practice of justice and liberation. How might our conviction of faith move us to action and collective healing? What would that look like? But before we can get to a place of reconciliation and healing, I believe part of this calling to justice includes the power of acknowledgement, the act of confession, and the practice of lament. In some ways, this mirrors our faith journey. God asks us to acknowledge our faith, confess our wrongdoings, our fallibility, and then lament or repent as a practice to be in relationship with him. So my invitation to you today is to consider how this same pattern can honor this calling to co-labor with one another in our pursuit of justice, repair, and collective freedom. Now, if you haven't gathered, I appreciate the exploration of language. Blame my mother, who's here today, and the meaning or roots of words. Maybe that's why she encouraged me to take Latin, which I've still failed to quite understand why five years was really worth it. I think I should have learned Spanish, but here we are today. Um, Like, it is a dead language, but it's fine. Um, I I think exploring the roots of words offers us clarity. And in this case, I think it can give us a framing. So my first invitation to us this Juneteenth morning is the practice of acknowledgement, which according to our friend Webster means this to accept or admit the existence or truth of. Now let's meditate on that for a moment, to admit the existence of. When we think about a disagreement with a partner or a sibling or a friend, before there can be repair and reconciliation and a hug and a celebratory dinner, there's first the power in just naming the thing, articulating the harm, acknowledging what has been fractured. Acknowledgement is to know, respect, discern, regard. Regard offers a sense of reverence for the thing that has transpired or exists. And according to the biblical concordance, to acknowledge is also to equate with care for, to discern, respect. Y'all, acknowledgement is an act of care. Acknowledgement is a part of the spiritual practice of repair. In Romans, we are called to rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Vox, how have we acknowledged the ongoing disruption to freedom, justice, and shalom in our community? These headlines on the screen before you are a visceral reminder of the reality in our beloved city. How have we acknowledged them in our word and deed, in our spiritual practices, through our communal communal presence. Back in 2016, I was uh, invited to travel to Perth, Australia, to speak at a social impact conference at the University of Western Australia. And it was life-changing, not only because I literally traveled to the other end of the world, um, but because I was introduced to this paradigm-altering practice, one I'm gonna introduce you to with this image on the screen one that I have since adopted in my work here in Austin and around the U.S. When I attended the opening ceremonies of this conference, the event was kicked off by this practice referred to as an acknowledgement of country, 
where time and space was taken to recognize the aboriginal land that the university stood on. If you're unfamiliar with the aboriginal community of Australia and New Zealand, it's likened to the indigenous people that serve as the original custodians here in North America. A similar history of violent oppression and marginalization of indigenous people. There is power in acknowledging the harm caused, the truth and history of such violence. Acknowledging whose soil we stand on, who tilled this land before we occupied it. This framing was a powerful lever for me, even connected to my own history and story as a black American. The power of truth-telling, the power of acknowledging harms past and present in a country that has failed to love us all equitably. Author Isabel Wilkerson says it like this. It was common to hear in certain circles disbelieving cries. This is not America. I don't recognize my country. Or this is not who we are. Except that this was and it is our country. And this was and is who we are whether we have known or recognized it or not. Vox, how will we acknowledge our collective and individual harms in order for us to get to a place of celebration and reconciliation that even this day offers us? There must first be the acknowledging of the harm and that that this holiday represents 400 years of slavery and a two to three year delay in the emancipation of black Texans. There is power in truth-telling. So my request of all of us beyond today is to consider this. What things have gone unacknowledged in America, in Austin, in your community, in our faith community? What might the church need to acknowledge before sojourning on this path to reconciliation and justice? And so what is beyond the act of acknowledgement? Well, and the journey of repair with people and with Christ is confession. Now, let me put any recovering Catholics at ease. I don't mean the practice of confession that has us sitting in that posture of guilt and shame, but rather invites us to profess and declare truth. Truth of our complicity, truth of our role. When we look at the breakdown of confession, it reads as a formal statement admitting that one is guilty. Truth, the truth is that each of us is guilty of not living up to this biblical mandate of collective freedom. The truth is some of us have short-term stamina. Our pursuit of racial justice having been episodic or only moved by inflection points or news headlines. Too many of us as leaders, mothers, parents, educators, neighbors, humans, people of God, saw this work as a moment, not as a lifelong practice, spurred not just by the murder of people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, or dictated by our Google Calendar telling us when it's appropriate or convenient to concern ourselves with others' humanity. Confession means to profess. It's also a promise to concede. Confess both to God and to those persons we have wronged. It's to take action, to create accountability. In Proverbs, we are compelled to consider that no one who conceals transgressions will prosper, but one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Which leads us to this meaning of today, which is the significance of making Juneteenth a federal holiday 
to confess our national wrongdoings and historic travities that have informed our current realities. So to make this personal, to make this close, I wanted to offer a bit of historic context to anchor this practice of confession, the practice of abiding in grace as we articulate our past and present fallibility. So there's an image on the screen of a historic plaque, and this is a call and response time. So who knows what this sign represents? It reads Clarksville. And feel free to either yell out what it represents or geographically where it's located here in Austin. Anybody? Louder. A Freedman community. Anyone else? Where is it geographically located? West Austin. All right. Anything else? Any other anecdotes or facts? This is your time to show off, y'all. What do y'all know? Someone said something over here? Yes. Okay, so, history lesson. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln said, let my people go. Or maybe that was Moses, but same thing. (laughs) But the the tweet came a little late to Texas, about two years to be exact. And Gordon Granger sent word to the people of Galveston that Texas, that black people in Texas were indeed freed from the bondage of Chattel slavery. So, two years after emancipation, black people in the state of Texas were told that they were free. And Clarksville, along with eight other freedom towns, were established in central Texas. So if you have ever driven down 15th Street, the moment it turns to Enfield, you are in Clarksville. And that is the bound, that's the east boundary line, and the west boundary line is the Mopac Bridge. And it goes down to about mm, 8th Street all the way up to about 15th Street. And so, you know, these incredibly generous, benevolent former slave owners gave, quote, in quotation marks, um, land to now black freedom, freedmen. But it wasn't without some strategy. It was in close proximity to wealthy white neighborhoods so they could then come work for them. In fact, the house that I grew up in, in uh, not Clarksville, in Pemberton, we always thought it was curious that my little brother's bedroom was, had a separate entrance where the laundry was, right? It was disconnected from the rest of the house, and that's where lived-in servants or indentured servants lived. So... We established these eight freedom towns in West Austin, or I'm sorry, throughout Austin and Central Texas. And it's pretty powerful to imagine in 2022, living in this city, that this city marks the first area of black freedom in the state of Texas. And if you ever shopped at Wheatsville Co-op, Wheatsville was another freedom town. And black people through grace and with resilience, established a prospering, beautiful community through the early 20th century. The first black schools, you see a photo here, this is the very first black school in in, uh, Clarksville, which was also connected to the church. Sweet Home Baptist Church is actually still there, just west of Enfield and off Waterston. But fast forward to the early 1920s, and the city of Austin began to assess the city's properties and what would be the most valuable. And it did so through creating a city plan, the city plan of 1928. It was supposed to be this forward-thinking, innovative strategy. Not forward-thinking enough to save us from I-35, but just enough, right, to identify the most valuable land in the city. 
And part of this plan outlined that many of the now established freedom towns were in fact prime real estate. So I imagine that they, you know, over ever so politely knocked on people's doors and asked if they could buy their homes. And we were like, nah, thanks, come again. And the city said, that's cool. We're just going to create policy that now makes it illegal for you to live in this part of town. And so you'll see an extraction from the 1928 plan, which then created what we, now, what we then know, knew of as the Negro District, which would forcibly remove black people at the time, Mexican-Americans, from west of what we now know of as East 35 to East Austin. And let me also preface that East Austin obviously isn't what we know of today as we sit in the, the, the nucleus of, of East Austin. It was actually where the refineries were. It's where the trash dumps were. It was the most untenable land in Austin because it was really hard soil and hills. And if you actually travel throughout most of America, you'll find that most of the original black communities were at the bottoms of hills because the trash dumps would be at the top and the toxic waste could then run down. So this is strategic. And I want you to also consider that this mirrors that a decision, a value set had been created. This city decided who it would value and who it would not. If we go to the next slide, it demonstrates one more that in nearly just 12 years, this is a map of 1940, the purple and brown dots are black and brown people. In just 12 years, black and brown people were forcibly removed to, at the time, east of East Avenue, now what we know of as I-35. And so we decided as a city, not only who would be valued, but that then became a pervasive ethos that oriented all of our institutions, all of our policies and practices. West of 35, the birth of Whole Foods. East of 35, that up until about five, 10 years ago was a food desert. West of 35, our only up until Dell Children's healthcare systems. High performing schools, schools that had lost their accreditation on East of 35. We literally built a structure, I-35, to enforce who would be valued, enforce who would be able to um, participate in liberation and so this is a story that not only has long gone acknowledged in our city, but for many navigating the streets of West and East Austin is largely unknown, unspoken, unconfessed. What would happen if we were willing to confess and profess and thus articulate this pain and harm as a way of committing to the work of repair? Repair that is needed here in June 2022, in the very communities that we all occupy because we are all promised freedom in Christ. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom from the slavery and oppression of systemic inequities, freedom from the pains of soil, of silencing and siloing our voices and stories, freedom from the stronghold of racial injustice so ingrained and our social, political, and economic fabric of this country that it informs our daily lives. And what happens when we aren't willing to speak truth, to profess, right? We then live in the comfort of these convenient narratives. And so I often talk, and I've offered some of them on the screen, about these convenient narratives, right? The convenient narratives that probably brought many of you to Austin, 
right? This idea that as a city, we are the fastest growing city in, um, in America of a city our size, right? We're the top 10 green city. We're the live music capital of the world, the birth of South by and ACL. We're, and I really truly don't want to offend anyone's sort of food traditions, but we're the blueberry in the tomato soup. Haven't quite understood why we use that metaphor, but that's apparently what we are. We are the liberal bastion, right, in the state of Texas. We're highly educated, right? These are the convenient narratives that orient us, right? They're comfortable. But there's a different reality. There's the inconvenient stories and truths that are oftentimes overwhelming and burdensome. But like our salvation, right, we have to be active in dismantling them. The inconvenient realities are that we are also one of the most economically segregated city of a city our size, which means there are two zip codes where most of our wealth and resources are concentrated. That in the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of incredible economic oppression, black and brown people are experiencing homelessness, experiencing death and sickness from COVID, three times more likely. Our liberation has to be ongoing. Even, in to, even on today's, days like today, where we get a moment to rejoice and celebrate our resilience and the act of overcoming, there's work to be done to honor the ways in which we are still not all free. Cole Arthur Riley invites us to consider it like this. Let this be your reminder that your grief doesn't always need to look like hope and understanding. Let your lament tell the truth. God doesn't need it to be digestible. These words hit me hard every time I read it. Because even with the hope that we have in Christ, the promise of reconciliation, peace, and justice, the world does not honor all of our humanity. Right? That there's this, honestly this constant state of doubt, especially these last few years where we have ingested trauma on trauma have endured the pains, the traumas of seeing black and brown bodies brutalized and then viralized, we are left with contending with the realities of the state of freedom for people who don't have full autonomy. We must face these systems that we have, that have cons not considered our full well-being. So my last invitation is that of the spiritual practice of lament. An appropriate posture that I think goes hand in hand with today's recognition and celebration of Juneteenth. So what does lament mean? And I think we do lament really well here at Vox. I think it's one of our, our strong practices. But as a reminder, lament means to mourn, to wail, to be pained. To lament is to express grief or sorrow for something. It is a demonstrative act of pain and relief. Lament is the nuanced and necessary intersection of confessing pain and pursuing hope. And I, when I think about Juneteenth, I think it sits in that very intersection. It's a confessing of past harms and pains, but it is a commitment to hope. It is a commitment to freedom. The fear, doubt, bewilderment, anger, shame, we are all called to grapple with it all as a part of our journey to reconciliation, belonging, and justice in God. Martin Luther King reminds us, and he said it like this, 
There is not Easter Sunday without Good Friday. Our lament is an action of co-laboring with our community and the ongoing work of liberation. Freedom requires our lament for things that have disrupted our collective freedom. So back to our scripture for today in Romans. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That part, that lament, knowing who and how we have suffered, induces this calling to shalom. It drives our sustained commitment to this collective biblical purpose. Romans goes on to read, and in endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. And because God loves and because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. In Jeremiah, we are convicted not to ignore the pains of those around us, but name them. How do we name them? How do we ensure that we don't, be, we don't cover up the harms that our community experiences, that we don't just abide in the convenient narratives of this city? We can't ask for peace before we have done the work of peace. Because that is wearing, wearing particularly on those of us on the side of oppression. And I've been reflecting on this idea of weariness and exhaustion in this pursuit of freedom through an intergenerational perspective the last few months. I have some photos of some pretty amazing women up here. Last month, I flew to Atlanta to celebrate my paternal grandmother's 90th birthday. And she was honored by friends and family from all over the country. We hosted a Zoom party, um, you know, as cool 90-year-olds do. And she had about 60 people join us. And of those 60 people, four people on that Zoom call had known her for 75 years. And they called in from New York and Virginia And then we had an in-person gathering, COVID safe, of course. It was only 20 people. And we read a proclamation from one of the city council members, one of the commissioners, all of these elected officials, honoring not just the work she had done for 50 years as an educator, as a senior advocate, as a housing advocate, as someone who had run for elected position in, um, in Atlanta. But they also honored the work that she continues to do today. In the midst of a pandemic that had siloed her to her house for two years, 90 years old, someone who had perfected texting emojis and learning Zoom so that she could participate in her weekly calls are part of the housing authority to ensure black and brown people had equitable access to housing. And as a granddaughter, like, it gets me emotional. Wow, what what an incredible legacy to be a part of. Someone that in almost a century of life is continuing to fight alongside people, fighting for her grandchildren's future. But there's also this anger that I have, this frustration that I have, this jadedness that I have, that my 90-year-old grandmother and my 80 five-year-old grandmother, that's my mother's mother sitting beside you, still have to fight. That they have not come to a place of rest in their life yet. 
a, two women who are a generation removed from slavery, whose grandparents were slaves. And I'll be honest with you, I have really struggled with this. I have had moments of confusion and anger with God. Like, God, you promised justice, but I don't feel it or see it. Nor do I see the people around me who claim to love me, who claim to acknowledge and confess, I'm sorry, who claim to love me, doing the work of acknowledging, confessing, naming, or lamenting in ways that disrupt such harm. When will we see this promised peace, freedom, liberation, justice? When will my paternal and paternal grandmothers, who still feel such a sense of urgency in their work, to reconcile broken education and housing systems, harming black and brown communities, when will they experience and know rest? And so what I offer you today, Vox, this morning, is a reminder that this is the work of God's people. This is biblical. This is a spiritual practice. Reverend Brian Messingay says it a little bit more direct than maybe I have the guts to. He says it like this, for beneficiaries of white privilege, lament involves the difficult task of acknowledging their individual and communal complicity in past and present racial injustices. It is a form of truth-telling and contrition that acknowledges both the harms that have been done to others and one's personal and communal culpability for them. We can't call for unity, Vox. We can't call for community. We can't call for shalom until we have done the work to acknowledge the pains and missteps. Just as Jesus has asked us to confess and profess in faith as a part of our long, lifelong journey of repair. So we can't have acknowledgement. I'm sorry, we can't have uh, unity without acknowledgement. Dante Stewart again reminds us that it may require theological questioning, a re-articulation of our spiritual practice. He says that we may never want to get to a place where we believe that our tradition and theologies are so pure that they're above criticism and need of change, especially when those theologies and practices are harm to us and others and to God's promise. Inhale Vox, my faith has harmed others. Exhale, God wants us all healed and whole. Inhale, my faith is not a weapon. Exhale, God is love and liberation. So my last question for your reflection is this. What does lament mean to you? How might it move us to build an individual and collective space of healing in the spaces that we are called to? If justice is what we are called to do as people of God, to enact fairness and equity, right action, righteousness set to set us right with God, how can we all participate in the work of shalom? And it's one of my favorite words. It's a word that I was introduced to from, by my father. He uses it all the time. In fact, I think it's part of his email signature. And shalom is a Hebrew word. It means well, well-being, completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, tranquility, prosperity, fullness, rest. It's a lot. It asks for a lot. 
It's the absence of agitation and discord. How do we participate in this active collective work of shalom? On a day like today where we are invited to celebrate freedom of black people in this state, how do we participate in the ongoing liberation of God's people? Not as this distant practice that is only anchored by how we vote, not as a distant practice of the obligation of others, but as something so close that it anchors our understanding of God, that it propels us to shift our practices, our paradigms, and our spiritual practices. So Fox, what does it look like to seek collective liberation in your community this summer? What does that sound like? What does that feel like? What will that require of you? And so even as I offer these reminders, I leave you with these considerations to challenge how our spiritual practices, how our faith paradigms inform our lives and community. Today is also a day of celebration. And if there's one thing the people of God have modeled throughout time, it is the human conditioning to hold space for both reality and joy. Today, we rejoice not only for the remembering of what we have overcome, but the promise for our continued liberation on earth and in Christ, even when it feels far, even when it feels unfulfilled. In this spirit, I want to end us this morning with, a, with sounds of celebration and lament. This song, Hosanna, by Kirk Franklin, is a song my father used to play what I thought at Agnosium growing up. Um, it was on repeat in the car every morning on the way to school or on the way to church. And Hosanna is translated from the Greek to mean the appeal to God for deliverance. It's a praise, it's a beseeching to save, to liberate us. And I believe it to be an appropriate song today as we all consider our role in our collective liberation. So we'll just play a few minutes of this song um, in closing.
Box as we close out today and we enter this beautiful day of Juneteenth. My invitation is to celebrate, but then also consider our collective work in liberation. Shalom.